From the Clock Tower at Mountaineer, this is the C.S. Lewis Book Club. I'm Dan. And I'm Alex. Welcome to our book club, and thank you for joining us in Season 3 as we explore the journey of Christian conversion. In this episode, we're still in The Pilgrim's Regress, books 4 through 7. And, spoiler alert, if you hadn't read along with us to this point, we are going to spoil. So go pause, read, and come join us, or just keep listening and break all the rules. Breaking <laughs> breaking rules. Did that come from this section? <laughs> uh, I don't know, maybe. Come back to the main road after. A- <laughs> That's right. right. Always go back to the main road. So, Dan, for housekeeping, how you doing? How's this book coming along? This one is a little bit more tricky than our average C.S. Lewis read so far. Yeah. And I've heard that also from some other book club members. They're kind of saying, hey, guys, really excited to listen because we're a little lost. Yeah. We're a little lost on this road. I'm not sure if we're good guides. We're not. (laughs) So this is a good reminder for you and, well, for mostly myself that uh, we're not here to analyze everything. And there's a lot to analyze. Yeah. But what we're just here to give you our experience. Now, I have a little bit of experience in the philosophy that is that Lewis is drawing from as he goes on this pilgrimage of wisdom. He doesn't know where it, that it's a Christian pilgrimage yet, but it is a wisdom pilgrimage. He'll go to Mother Kirk. As a last resort. <laughs> As a last, that's Poor right. Mother Kirk. <laughs> <laughs> um, the the voice, the Simon Vance's voice from Mother Kirk makes her sound so frail. She's <laughs> bad for her. Um, so I'll try, and this is this will be this is the challenge for me to dip into the philosophy as much as doesn't detract us from the overall experience. And I'm not an expert in the philosophy either. I'm a Mr. Sensible about the philosophy. I can throw phrases out here and there and pretend that I know what I'm talking about. But if you catch an irrationality in the in the eclecticism of the way that I come at <laughs> philosophy, just know that's me doing a, uh, a Dunning-Kruger type posturing. I think what Lewis would call the, I haven't crossed the pons asinorum yet. That's why we're staying in our experience, because that's really all we have authority to talk about. And uh, I think that's the way that for us and for you, our listeners, I think that's the way that this is going to be the most beneficial for us. Do you, so, Would you agree, Dan? Let's get lost together. Let's uh. be fellow pilgrims <laughs> on this journey. So, I mean... John is lost too. So maybe that's maybe a little intentional yeah. that we're lost with him. And there might be some resolution on the other side of this canyon if we can get there. <laughs> maybe. <laughs> maybe. You might have to die first. So, Ouch. So I'll read the summary and we'll talk, talk a little bit about themes. Reason helps John escape the spirit of the age. John reunites with virtue and they continue their pilgrimage together. They continue along the main road until they come to a canyon that they cannot cross. There, an old woman, Mrs. Kirk, offers to help them cross, but they decide to find their own way across by going northward. They come to the house of Mr. Sensible, and after realizing he is incapable of helping them, they continue northward until they meet three pale men. John is too fatigued to continue, but Virtue continues on to the land of Savage and his armies of the dwarves. Virtue returns, but has become blind and dumb of altitude sickness from his sojourn in the north. John leads Virtue back southward until they come to the house of Mr. Wisdom in the Valley of Humiliation, where Virtue is cured. Nothing like a little humiliation for a cure. Yeah, I, I'm not sure. I can't. I think they call it that. They do. They yeah, do. they say it was. It used to be called. They call it the Valley of Wisdom, but they it say on to... old maps it was the Valley of Humiliation. I think that's to correspond with John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. There's a Valley of Humiliation. Cool, so. like it. Themes, Alex. I have food and wine. 
that seems to be something that kind of crops up as an element of qualification or some sort of identification of substance wherever they wherever John and virtue stop. I'm not sure if there's like a specific element of food and wine making things substantial or if that's just an indication for us that you're not going to find what you're looking here. There's no islandness about this stop. So keep going. Yeah. And it's interesting. And well, I'm sure we'll go through this is where there was substantive food found yeah. in other places where they were just farming the sand. I, I think it is interesting that it's not like you come to the pale men and <laughs> What is it? The um, I think it's humanism is saying like their their crops are are nothing much yet, and he's like they're nothing. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's not just all barren. They do there is some food, some more more in some places than others, and sometimes the food's not coming from the place that they're in. I think that's interesting too. Um, wine seems to be a little different, almost like wine's the pleasurable aspect of staying in a mindset. Did you I like have, that. We'll look for yeah, those. Yeah. Did you have uh, themes? I think pr pride and humility. Yeah. And as you meet all of these different characters, so previously and then the ones we've met in this section, I think one big question is why are they staying where they're at? Because a lot of them are in situations which you would think you'd want to move on. Yeah. And, and John doesn't lose sight of that, even though he stops in each place and he's learning. Um something continues pushing him on. Yeah, if John is Lewis himself, which I don't think Lewis intended entirely because I think this is, this journey is supposed to be generalizable to us. But we know, okay, he eventually he eventually becomes this really inspired religious author and figure and philosopher and um, and so we're kind of, I, while I'm reading, I was like, okay, okay, move on. This is, you got more to do before you become the, the Lewis that I know, <laughs> but at every phase, there's a real threat of staying there. Yeah. And I think you can see in yourself, there's a threat in your own Christian conversion process in, in your own faith journey or pilgrimage that each one of these places is trying to entice people to stay there. And you can see if you have had um, ebbs and flows or even <laughs> halts in your own pilgrimage, I think it's really helpful to see where was I stuck in Some, this map. Something you said on the last recording was looking for areas where our pieces of our heart has have been stuck along the way. Because like you said, I think little bits of us maybe get caught up in any one of these at any given point. Right. And, we, and we so it's still... more identify <laughs> them and pull them back towards Narnia in the north. Well, maybe not so much the north here. Not the different north. <laughs> the island to the island. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of symbolism there. Later in Narnia, we see northernness, but north in the, you know, there's northernness that's too far north, like north in the giants. When they're in the south, Narnia and the north, right? Going toward the main road. And then there's also the symbolism of the head, the heart, and the gut, and the main road, the being the heart, and if that's bringing your mind back to what we we, we haven't covered the book. Ooh, abolition missed that man. symbolism, but <laughs> right, it it's now. all there. You can tell that this mythological space and um, cartography it, it kind of follows Lewis through whatever he's talking about, and all the books that he's following kind of have this idea. And if you want to think of North, even in a topographical um, way, like altitude, instead of just the compass point, it becomes less substantial, more head in the clouds sort of thing. You, you, you leave your foundation a little bit. Hmm. And so that's where a lot of the problems in the, uh, in the map at the front of my copy of the book, even above Savage is this island of mania. And you can kind of become um, maniacal, I, I think, from getting too heady about things. And then obviously this isn't so much of Lewis's personal experience, but I'm sure it is for a lot of us. Maybe some people's journey it stays a little too far in the South of, of materialism or even mysticism and, and, um, the occult. And maybe there's a little more substance down there, but it's kind of so substantial that you're lost in the bog in the swamp. Yeah. Well, I'm glad that our that this theme of pride is leaving us in the Valley of Humiliation. Seems like a good place to go if you yeah. need to uh, root out some of that pride. So, okay, let's take a break and we will jump into the chapters. 
Welcome back. Book four. Where would you like to go? I think we need to stick with reason for a little bit. At the end of our last episode, reason had rescued John with these riddles. And it's interesting because the riddles seem to be something that the spirit of the age should have been able to answer, but it cannot answer. Yeah, and you tricked me because you asked me for answers. And then later on in book four, we get more insight into what the answers are. That's true. And so it made me look. Yeah, I, I had a really read. humiliated before we <laughs> no, even got to the valley. Me too. I didn't know the I didn't know the answers. And we talked about them. And I think it's important to get there, right? Lewis is coming at the answers and he's got some Lewisism Lewisisms uh for the answer. If you remember, like the answers to these riddles seem to be themes that kind of come up in other books and everything. So you can see, oh, that's why he talks about this so much and what he's kind of responding to. It seems that he's responding to Freudianism and the spirit of his age. So the first riddle, which is the color of something in the dark. Yeah. Now we, now we do have an answer. What does reason say is the answer to that one? She said the color, you can't know the color of something that you can't see. Yeah, it's kind of like a warning against deconstructionism and that there's this attitude. It's like, oh, you're just these things. You're just these intestines and your innards and your fluids or whatever. And it's like, that's not how we experience each other. Right. And and she used the example of once you've cut a man open and you're actually looking at his innards, not that a man man's anymore. probably dead. So it's <laughs> not a man. And so that the our more real than our intestines functioning is the feeling of eating when you're hungry. Yeah. And we can all relate with the reality that we experience when we satiate our hungry. Yeah. That type of idea. What I think the missing premise that, that reason is kind of bringing out is that, um, if you're going to deconstruct something, the missing premise is let's pretend we take, there's no meaning in relationship of any of what makes up a human body. Okay. Now, once you take away meaning, Sure, a body is just what you can cut it up into into its component parts, but that's never. You see a corpse and you're frightened. You see an alive human and you're not. Assuming, or maybe you are. Or maybe you are <laughs> for a different reason, right? We have like the zombie stuff because this this contradiction of living and dead, and that freaks us out. And that's the meaning of our experience. And so the way that we experience each other is very painted by meaning. It's colored and. Uh, every all of our experiences really our meaning that we give it and that it gives it to us. So to pretend that we can get through our experience of something at the beginning of the abolition of man, he talks about this this green book that gives an example of something that I think is from um, Coleridge just this experience of people, two people at a waterfall and one says it's beautiful and what the other says it's majestic or it's, uh, or it's sublime. And that the people, the people writing the book kind of say neither of those are meaningful because that's their projection of meaning onto the thing. And they try to say that a waterfall is neither of those things. They're just t- betraying what's going on in, in them. And it's like, well, <laughs> We all kind of agree that waterfalls are pretty sublime. And to try to explain something by taking away the meaning that we have with that thing almost takes away the whole reason for explaining it. If you're going to say water is just these molecules that are moving in a certain direction relative to their position to other things, like, well, then I don't care about waterfalls. But I do care about waterfalls. They're cool. The battle between scientists and poets, (laughs) if they're not scientists themselves. Right. So you can see the battle between the North and the South and that main road that goes through the middle where our heart is seems to be something that we can utilize the good of both. Yeah. I I like that reason tells John, you can travel with me for as long as you can handle it. Yeah. He he gets, eventually he like escapes. I think it's called like an escape. He escapes her because it's a little too much. And she seemed to know it would be too much. Yeah. She knew he was going to burn him out. I think that's true with me. Yeah. My reasoning. And maybe that's good. Maybe you shouldn't be with. I was trying to decide, is it good? You know, if I can remember, I think reason has another role to play in this book. But I think people's problems generally are that they're not allowing reason to accompany them on their journeys enough. Yeah. That was not Lewis's problem. 
when he calls himself the most reluctant convert, he's kind of forced through that conversion by reason, despite his reluctance. So that's kind of his, that's the quality in Lewis that I want to emulate is somebody who allows reason to be my companion, even when it's uncomfortable. And I think that's the answer of the second riddle because the second riddle is crossing the bridge. You got an enemy with you. Maybe that enemy is reason sometimes, whatever the, the enemy is. Now she uses it to say that Freudianism or the spirit of the age is all you need to defeat Freudianism. If from that perspective, um, God is just this will, wish fulfillment dream. And then John even laughs once she gives the explanation and says that like, if he imagined Mr. Halfways or the giant, let's say the landlord was actually coming back, how would they feel? They'd be terrified. So their own belief that the landlord doesn't exist seems to be its own wish fulfillment dream. And so, and reason even cautions him from using their own weapons against that. Well, from using their weapons, but also learning from it. You can learn from it, but be careful not to use the weapons that your enemies are using against you. Ransom has something like that to say in, in um, that hideous strength where he says, we can't be too prudent. I like that she reminds him not to totally throw throw the baby out with the bathwater when it comes to the giant because there were there were truth there was some truth in what he could learn there and she reminds him that your race can't afford to be proud that's like the first time he gets scared that's when he gets scared yeah yeah that's interesting yeah because i think that's this is really common in my experience is when you feel like you're fighting something and you're looking at the spirit of the age and you see the chinks in the armor, you see their flawed logic, it's so easy to become proud. And the danger of that, because once you're proud, your ability, I think, to walk with reason is hampered. You become reactionary rather than a pilgrim. Running away from something isn't really a journey. Yeah. And so the and you and you'll see the reactionary effect on what on those three pale men once we get to them, that they are not really friends, but they have a common enemy and they're reactionary against Mr. Halfways. John also seems surprised that he seems surprised to find out at this point he's he's started to assume that the landlord doesn't exist or has kind of bought into this belief. And C.S. Lewis obviously was atheist for a while. And when reason points out that the people who are claiming he doesn't exist have no evidence, and John seems surprised, well, they, you know, they're saying that they're sure and whatever. And she says, well, they can't because the only thing that speaks to the landlord are her sister's philosophy and theology, which they refuse to interact with. Yeah, there's a little bit of uh, evidence of absence is an av absence, or absence of evidence is not evidence of absence. So you can't say that the landlord doesn't exist based on evidence because you're just saying there is no evidence. Well, that's, you're creating this modus tollens error in logic by saying, I don't have evidence, therefore there isn't any. It's called okay. affirming, affirming the consequent by your premises. Yeah, you have these premises. You, that means you don't have enough for a consequence in your syllogism. And so she's pointing out this logical error in that type of thinking. And that's what reason can do for you. Because your mind has the ability to work through syllogisms of logic, to do the math of logical reasoning. But reason herself cannot tell John what the truth is because it's not in him yet. And she kind of tells him that like, I can only tell you what's already in you. I can only make clear what's in the darker part of your mind, which sounds kind of subconscious type jargon, which is a Freudian thing. I'm not sure if that's use, part of the using the giant's learning something from your sojourn in the giant's land or in the spirit of the age. There's some wisdom to take from that. But um, anyway, maybe I'm getting a little too. Lost no, I, I think she uses the example of an, an x-ray is valuable for a doctor. Type oh, of thing. yeah, exactly. You know, like, yeah, the, a picture of your insides is helpful for someone trying to heal you. Right. She kind of throws that out there. Exactly. Because if that if it, <laughs> if the deconstruction is still kind of coupled with the meaning that you're seeking or that you're trying to utilize, as long as you're not saying... The, removing something from meaning 
cutting it apart and then saying, see, it doesn't mean anything. Well, you already in the first step removed it from meaning. And so you can't disprove meaning by that process. Yeah. So John runs from virtue, runs from reason, finds virtue. Wonder if there's anything in that. Well, virtue's gone down the med, <laughs> mid, the middle path, right? Remember the reason that John went on this pil- uh, on this pilgrimage to begin with was because starting in Puritania, his there seemed to be a lot of these contradictory elements to seeking out his deep desire or his sweet desire. There's desires ending in lust, right? And that the being in that middle Puritania didn't really help him get there. He was too young. He didn't understand how to, the, the path from there on the middle line, uh, is mountainous. It took vir- virtue a long time because he'd been going up and down these mountains. And John came kind of through this path that he went through by the way of thrill and, and meeting these other, you know, leaving Puritania so, uh, kind of gave him the shortcut a little bit to this point of getting past the spirit of the age. Hmm. So um, I know that that's kind of true for me. I've never really, I never really left Puritania. My own pilgrimage has been kind of on the middle path, but that doesn't, I don't think he wants to detract from that road being difficult as well. I think it's in mere Christianity. He points out the difficult or the problem in the logic of people saying that if you don't yield to temptation, then you don't really understand it. And Mm -hmm. he contends with that by saying, no, you understand the strength of the wind by standing against the wind, not by laying down to it. Mm -hmm. And so that idea of like, yeah, sticking on the straight and narrow path, it's difficult. It's hard. And it might seem like going off, it might force you off on a tangent unless you're really committed to it. So anyway, that's me just patting myself on the back saying that even though I've it's never okay. experienced, I've never <laughs> really like gone, I've, I've never really apostatized and yet I still understand what evil is and temptation is in a way I might understand evil better than the devils because I resisted it. I'd like to say that's true about me, but that's taking me a little too far from the house of wisdom. Regardless of the path you're on, you're still on a path through a fallen world that where all of the fruit is tainted to the chasm that we all have to cross and can't to the island we hope to reach. This is all making me feel really good about myself. Well, it could <laughs> it could make you feel like that or make you realize that we're all destined for the valley of humility at some point. Yeah. There's no way around that. That's true. <laughs> yeah. There was a part that I really, I thought of you and I knew you'd like was when they meet Mrs. Kirk. She kind of lays out the theology of the creation and fall and everything. And when when she talks about the Clevers and and John mentions, oh, the Clevers are, are going to be surprised to hear that there is a landlord or that they have their own landlord, which is the devil, that she says, yeah, the little people don't know. Like, that's the, that's the order of things that they're not seeing behind the curtain. And you'd brought that up when we talked to Mammon for a, for a minute on the last one. It's easy to look at people who are not as far along the journey as you are and point fun or poke fun and, and point fingers and say, you know, you're better than them, but that's never for us to really make that conclusion. In fact, we, that's where I think it's not our place to judge. Right. And if we were to judge ourselves by when we, by our pasts, we'll always fall short. You know, our own life has this progress and it's some people like to look at their past with humiliation. It's like, don't, that was, that was when you were before now, you know, that you've grown since then and have, have some compassion and and charity for yourself. So I think that we've also talked about the idea that you can't live in a place that's not governed by some steward, by some landlord, and you're going to have to yield to somebody. That was Jane and Mark's problem, wanting to remove themselves from this, even just theistic view that there is a God because they wanted to live their own life and be free and have make their own choices and feel like they had ownership of themselves. 
But all the land is owned by somebody, and all of us are little people. So realizing that, I think, helps you understand, okay, so how am I going to deal with some of these contradictions of free will and who I follow and making my own choice? And some of the people and the children of wisdom will help us get a little bit down that road, but you know, we'll get there when we get there. So I, I just think going along the path and it's at no point in this journey should you be, uh, look how much better I am than, than the people that live in those other towns. Yeah. You mentioned the Mr. Sensible in you. I think you were uh, putting yourself in too dark of a light. But what did you what did you see in Mr. Sensible? I, I think we've talked about the Dunning-Kruger effect before. Um, there's just this idea of wanting to have just enough knowledge about something that you can flex on somebody else. And Mr. Sensible, he keeps quoting certain things. And if if you come at this book thinking you should understand everything, even Mr. Sensible might be like really difficult for you. See through that. He doesn't know what he's talking about either. He's just that person and, and, or that idea. I've had professors like this. I've seen it in myself. There's relation, you know, people that I'm have, uh, relations with. That's a weird way to say that. Um, <clears throat> I have acquaintances and relatives that maybe really remind me of this character. But the point is they're taking advantage of their cherry, cherry picking. And maybe I shouldn't say they are the, the temptation of part of the journey of learning is to get to the point and be just utilitarian about your knowledge. Learn only until it starts serving you and then stop and then learn something else. So the problem that I see with Mr. Sensible is he's cherry picking from a lot of different worldviews. You could even call them philosophies. And even those, though those philosophies might have a, a worldview that's rational within itself, a lot of the philosophies are contradictory to each other. Some of them are uh, reactions to each other. And so you can't really just take what you like of one and use it with, a li- with uh, the, some conclusion from another. Those are internally contradictory if you follow them down to the base and the premises of their conclusions. But if people don't know the premises of those conclusions, they might think, wow, this person's smart. They know this phrase in Latin or in French, and they they spit it out as if it's some end point of this journey of wisdom and knowledge, just enough so that the, the majority of people think they're smart. That's very tempting. It's very tempting for me. Right. And, um, you, you can kind of see the silliness in Mr. Sensible. And if you didn't see the silliness, if you thought that he was somebody that was offering some real cryptic knowledge, that's his trick. So as you're getting to this part in the book, or as you got to this part of the book, if you were like, oh no, I don't know what all these phrases mean. It doesn't have a translation for the things that he's saying in different languages. Don't worry. (laughs) The point is he's just intelligence flexing. And he's trying, he's coming to this conclusion basically of the most flowery and pretty parts of all of these worldviews. Be like a bee, go from flower to flower and conversation needs to just flow. Don't right. be like a wood beetle that's just trying to eat through a table. That, that's right. <laughs> Don't stick long enough in somewhere that it actually has respond, uh, calls you to responsibility. And so that's the, that's the danger of the eclectic philosophy where you get to pick and choose what parts of philosophies you want. It's irrational. They, it won't work intern or consistently. They're, all of these conclusions are not internally consistent. And so you're living a lie so that you can live on this like surface of pretense of having everything figured out. And what's cool here is after you get a little bit more of the backstory and you talk to Drudge, you realize what type of life or a person has to have to be able to really adopt this philosophy, Yeah, which is... Well, he doesn't realize, or maybe he doesn't realize he's not being honest about where the food and the wine that he's enjoying comes from in order for him to live at this lifestyle that he says everybody should just live at virtue even calls him out i guess so your your philosophy is just have unbroken good luck forever (laughs) right and this is a philosophy of wealthy people 
right? It's like, why don't you, life's easy. Don't worry so much about money. Well, that's easy to say if you have money. If you don't have money, it's a pretty important thing to worry about. And so you can see drudge, which is human labor that, that Mr. Sensible seems to not have to worry about. He's, he's got enough wealth without having to work for it. Uh, he can start saying, oh, you know, just life's easy. Just let it be easy. You know, he even points to Drudge says that his first, the first master of the house was, uh, Epicurus. And if you've heard Epicureanism and sometimes in modern day, that's connected to hedonism, but Epicureanism is kind of this shoot off of stoicism. Stoicism is something that I think, I think Lewis somewhere else says is a philosophy for rich people, <laughs> <laughs> you know, because it really was the philosophy of the, of Marcus Aurelius, the Roman emperor, you know, and, and, and these people who were taking advantage of the the luxuries that civilization had afforded them. And so it can't really supply what you need to get to that level. Uh, Epicureanism much more than Stoicism, but Epicurus has this line, and I think it's funny because uh, Drudge calls him out for being terrified of death or terrified of the canyon. Epicurus has a quote that says, there is no fear in death. And it sounds like this really brave, bold statement, like, don't be afraid of death. But what he's saying is when you're dead, you can't be afraid anymore. <laughs> <laughs> and so it seems like this way of just projecting out saying, just don't think about it. <laughs> don't Try not to be afraid of it. And then the whole lifestyle of the Epicurean is to maximize pleasure. Now, from that stoic position, there is some honor in the maximizing pleasure attitude that's not just hedonistic because temperance is a big part of Epicureanism and responsibility and understanding, yeah, pleasure is an important thing to, it's, it's a good, C.S. Lewis identifies it as a good, remember, all through screw tape letters. Screwtape's reminding Wormwood that pleasure's not on their side. They don't like pleasure. The pleasure's a, a product of the enemy. And so realizing that is a good, but we've lost by the time we get to Mr. Sensible. Epicurus was a better master to drudge. By the time we get to Mr. Sensible, we've forgotten all of the responsibility that comes along with it. Yeah. And it sounds like, I mean, starting with Epicureanism, like you're talking about and where Mr. Sensible is at, there was this the the land is literally falling away. This canyon, this divide is getting bigger. Right. It, it seems to be a good philosophy as long as you're still alive. And then it has nothing for the meaning of life beyond that. It, it makes all of the meaning of life just this temporary, you live, you pay taxes, you die, try to find meaning somewhere in that process. And so that is what I think, you know, it just keeps falling away and then it dies. And when it's dead, it's done. Yeah. And another important story detail here is the depth of the dirt and that an inch below the dirt is rock and nothing's growing here. There's no food to be found. There's just, it's pretty stark. Yeah, because it's superficial. You can't really give meaning there because the only way to really take advantage of what Mr. Sensible is taking advantage of is to have unbroken good luck yeah, and be, have all these friends where you can borrow from Mr. Halfways and Mr. Broad and um, Mr. Wisdom and all you can... Even even Mrs. Kirk, you can borrow some of the the substantial elements from them, but they did the work, not Mr. Sensible. Whew. We've did, covered some stuff. I, I so that was one of those <laughs> that was one of those parts where I I got like dragged into my pseudo. I I became Mr. Sensible a little bit talking about Mr. Sensible, but the whole point as we're going through this is you can kind of feel the superficial the superficial nature of that part of the journey. Don't stop there. Don't get stuck there. And John and Virtue, luckily, they leave. And one thing this going through this journey does fill me with, and I hope that Lewis was intentional about this, I think he was, is a desire to have things become more clear. Because it does, like you said, if you're feeling confused when you're when you're listening or or reading about Mr. Sensible, that might have been intentional. You're supposed to feel a little bit like that. And then when we're when hopefully we can find resolution, um, what John's seeking for. Yeah. So let's take a break. 
Okay, Alex. Right, we, I don't Miles like... <laughs> to go before we sleep. <laughs> Two more chapters. <laughs> well, these are doozies too. Yeah. These are probably the bulk of it. So I'll try not to get too lost in the weeds or well, lost in the clouds in this one because we're, we're up north, right? Okay. Well, I'm going to pull you into the weeds a little bit here. We have Mr. Neo Angular, Mr. Neoclassical, and Mr. Humanist. And maybe you just want to give us just a little thought on each one of those ideas and how they maybe sit or reflect against each other. As we're going up north, we're getting more ideological, philosophically. We're starting to try to intellectualize a little too much and getting away from more of the substantive and foundational elements, especially for John. John's whole journey is seeking the sweet desire, the vision of the island. And even though he has this ability to come up to the North and kind of see through a lot of things, um, it's, it's also not supplying, it's not answering the question that he wants. And so this is, we're getting up into the ivory tower where, where people are talking about all these intellectual things and yeah, that sounds all well and good. That's kind of, it's smart sounding, but is it really giving you anything? And these, the Neo aspects of each of these characters is kind of like this modern intellectualizing or they're all sons of Mr. Enlightenment, right? Of past theories that maybe had a little more and they're, they're just taking it too far north, right? And in fact, I think what Mr. Humanist represents is Rousseau and Rousseau was very influential in the ideologies that caused the French Revolution. So there's this it's important where they're on their path to Mr. Savage. So I don't think you can really understand, is it Mr. Savage? I think it's just Savage. He's, is he a giant or just the land owner? Dwarf King, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so once you start to understand what Savage is and that path to it, how we got to, and since Lewis wrote this in 1933, some things haven't happened yet. So he's kind of almost prophetic in this element. I'm not sure if living back then, everybody knew the conflicts that were going to start boiling up, you know, boiling up, or if they already had started. Um, World War II historians could answer that question. But he sees the militancy in a lot of these high-minded ideas that eventually lead to the unhumaning of the collective masses. And that's what I think is happening with the dwarves. Well, before we get to the savage or the dwarves, where do you see people getting caught up in these philosophies today? What are kind of the variants or versions? Uh, I'm, I'm kind of prone to this where you're trying to understand things that might not be, um, that lead to kind of a dogmatic lifestyle an asceticism. You can tell by the the sparseness of the land and everything. And this is something that I've talked about before. Like I'm prone to kind of more of an ascetic, uh, ascetic life or not, maybe not a lifestyle, but ideological standpoint because, well, if virtue is abstaining from all these pleasures, then that must mean the end of virtue is no pleasures and what that leads. And um, I think a lot of this North part is he's recognizing kind of the educated minds of the time leading to this collectivist ideological philosophical area uh, that is just turns out to be savagery right so they um neo angular is kind of like the new he, and he's this is a play on words i'm pretty sure uh of the anglo-catholicism or the anglican church and kind of the new educated way of looking at it. So in the early Christian church, there was this movement called scholasticism. And it was all about using kind of this new Christianity to understand. It was almost like the spearhead of the philosophical movement. And then that led to kind of this transhumanist and, and Gnostic attitude and all these, it doesn't really matter, but what it did was it was, it took, it was a mechanism of pulling the church out of the dependence on Jesus. And so it, it made it into its own, it's almost like this reasoning for using your own 
depending on your own merits and your own intellect in order to save you. And it pulls you away into this north where there's the, the, the earth is barren, but at least you get to feel like you're your own salvation instead of going further south and maybe just depending on something more real. And at some point, Angular says that Mother Kirk can carry, would carry him across the canyon at any time as if he and and they also say Angular knew the landlord existed and humanists knew he didn't. Right. They're and not their connecting link was reaction. Right. What they disliked. Correct. What they what they disliked. And it allowed them to accept everything that the giant revealed and still reject their dislike of all of the other cities before them. And then they talked about this veil that was thrown over. You know, you think of the giant, you know, you see through your organs and materialist and deconstructionist, and it allowed you to throw a veil over all of it to keep humans being humans and not reduce us to beasts. I mean, this is something that virtue, either virtue or John points out, is the unlikeliness that these three people are together yeah. and compatriots together. Right. And they're just being reactionary. And so that takes you, it, I think that pride element is a huge part of this. There's, they're so, all so self-assured and yet they, they'll look past the incompatibility of their own ideologies because they're just reactionary. They're reactionary and they're pushing away from Mr. Halfways. Now, remember, Mr. Halfways represents romanticism. He represents maybe the Renaissance attitude of of loving our art and and even real humanism, not the humanism of of this pale man. But there there was poetry and real physical art. You can almost see in the pale man, man maybe modern art is part of that humanist um, ideology. And it's like, well, this doesn't really help me as much as the art of the Renaissance, that type of beauty that has at least one foot in realism or something. It's not too lofty. It's It doesn't have its value in being not understood. And you can see how that progression north almost valu is valuable because it's not south. And so even though they're all reactions to Mr. Halfway's, at least at Mr. Halfway's, there was a banquet. There were things that you could really appreciate. There was substance there. There was real beauty. And Mr. Halfway's maybe is forgetting his own foundation, but it's all based in something that's a little closer to truth. This was very obvious to Lewis in his own journey that it kept taking him away from what he was actually seeking. Now, if Lewis is not a very proud person. I think he has every justification for being proud and think he's smarter than everybody, you know, most people he met because I think he was. And yet that doesn't really come out in him. In fact, he doesn't even like this book because he thought it was a little too preachy and and maybe too arrogant. And it's like, well, I'm all right with that because it's still not as arrogant as I am. You know, I have more of a draw to the North in this way than I think Lewis did. And so you can see that John is losing steam. He just kind of he becomes he can't go further yeah he can't go further it's it's not doing anything for him the air's too thin and there's nothing growing so you pointed this out when i walked in is i didn't know who the trolls represented the, the dwarves the, the yeah dwarves. so dwarves and and you can see this through the, the mythology is they're um they're like they, i mean they they're like men but they're not men uh, here there's there's the pejorative it's almost like you can think of dwarves as just being a collection a collectivism. And so um, the end point of this hyper-intellectualizing is the red-shirted dwarfs and the black-shirted dwarfs. That's a direct allusion to Marxists and fascists. You could say communists and Nazis. And Savage seems to be kind of this leader of the, you know, like this Bolshevik leader that's going to go storm the house of the Romanovs and and kill them all, you know. And then you have the, uh, Grumhilda, who is like this Valkyrie. You can, if you know um, some of the mythological uh, lining or uh, background of Nazism, is this this co opting of North Norse mythology in order to weaponize it 
for their own ideals, following a bunch of other irrational philosophies. And it's all based on this. She's, she's this basically master race type Aryan. And it's hard not to get there unless at some point in your northward journey, you say, whoa, this is might make me feel like I'm smarter than everybody else, but it sure isn't giving me what I want, which is maybe to come back south, get your he- your feet back on the ground, uh, maybe challenge, maybe your, your intellectual ability is not the end of all possible understanding and become a little bit more mystical. <laughs> or something you know and this is where you know i see a or lot just, of warning for me or or just don't be a, a man without a heart yeah man right. men without chess so this is that that's the danger and i think um it, it's not really identified but i think the process and the the real motivation to get up there to the north is a is pride is wanting to have everything figured out and intellectually understandable to you. And you can't make the universe understandable to you unless you drag it down to your level. The universe is more and it's it's bigger than your your capability of really grasping it. So after this experience, virtue is left blind and deaf and is sick. What is the realization that he has that seems to be unmaking him? Yeah, so you have this idea of moral relativism and objective or an objective morality. And the objective morality that we get back when we come to wisdom, who is the cure, who the, the way that virtue gets cured, morality depends. And if you say virtue is this morality, this these rules, this sense of a right and a wrong, a conscientiousness about the world and and trying to behave in a way that has standards. The further away you take that from its foundation, which is uh, Lewis calls the moral law or the Tao, the further north you go, the less these objective things, which might be because God said so, right? Even Socrates yields to God is good and we understand goodness from God. And, you know, you have to yield to piety or to deity in order for you to have any standards. And that was like kind of the ancient Greek belief in the forms is that it has to come from a mind or an identity. So the further north you go, now all of a sudden, what are all the virtues based on? And I hear people say this stuff all the time. Oh, that's just a cultural convention or um, the morality is just something that helps society work together, but it's not really based in anything except for the perpetuation of society keeping humans as humans instead of beasts and then eventually you say well then if it's just invented then it doesn't have any standard and uh, this building that i'm building on this standard doesn't have any foundation and then it falls apart and so virtue loses all of its motivation maybe not realizing how much it depended on something that wasn't just arrived at through intellect but maybe through revelation because before he said he set he set the best rules he could and followed the rules until he found a better set of rules. But that still in his mind earlier was self-generated, whatever he felt like was the best rule per his intellect. And there's this unmaking happening where he's realizing that it, there needs to be some other foundation besides that, which it seems like he finds in wisdom. Yeah, I, I, th- I think that there's at least reason to get back into that loop of maybe it's just the philosophical um, meat grinder or something. But I'm there's... speculating because I don't know what happens to virtue after this. <laughs> Does he cross the chasm? I don't know. I still think virtue is an important part of our lives, right? <laughs> so, and that's the point is you're going to, if you try to make yourself God, I mean, that's that's the basis of Satanism, right? Is is the worship of the self. People who call themselves Satanists, they're not. They're reactionary to some standard morality, and really, it's just a worship of themselves. They've made themselves God, which is no god, and that's how. That's really the, all Satan can do is destroy. So, that idea of getting to this point where you become a god for yourself, your head has become so inflated as you go to the north that you become a, a maniac, right? There's the island of mania above even where Savage is. And then nothing is meaningful at all anymore. And so you'll cease to be a man. 
you become a dwarf and then you'll put on the shirt for your team because why not? And when you ask them any question, Savage just sings back the song about, I don't know, savagery, right? And getting together and all these kind of um, militant type war songs. He says the first person who's who will be the casualty is humanism. He'll drink the, from the skull of humanism or whatever. And that, I think that's an allusion to the historical event of the French Revolution, right? The French Revolution became the reign of terror. It had all these lofty ideals based on Rousseau's philosophy, but then it just turned into these courts of tyranny. At least he sent food to fatten him up so there was enough blood for his Valkyrie wife to drink. <laughs> That's right. While you're on that path, I mean, there is some sense of satisfaction in this false realization that you are really that important. But I think it leads to solipsism. It leads to this idea that nothing is real except yourself. And then, and that's a type of terror. What, what do you think the food represents? The fact they did have real food out there in the furthest north, but they didn't have food with the Pale Brothers or with Mr. You Sinsby. know, thinking like Drudge goes up there and stays with them, labor, right? Drudge is the labor that Mr. Sensible was neglecting and abusing. And then it goes to this place where at least there's this camaraderie. Maybe that's the, the, the food is the sense of being in and belonging to this group, This even if it's a horde or a mass, a mindless mass, at least you belong. And belonging is a really important desire that a lot of people have. And you can't really remove it from people. The idea of being ostracized or the idea of being um, like solitary confinement becomes something that will drive somebody mad. And so like that is a real desire and satisfying that desire will bring some level of satisfaction. There's got to be something that's keeping those, those armies up there, but they're planning an assault on the lower parts of the land. And so you've got to be careful about making yourself God and becoming so inflated by in your head. When they meet Mr. Broad, and when he starts to talk about and eventually defend Mr. Sensible, that was that was when at first you figure, you know, this guy this guy lives in a more fertile place and he seems to have um anyways, he seems to have created a really good life and he's defending Mr. Sensible. And I start to feel what I'm trying to figure out as I meet each person is where have they gone wrong? Are are they have where have they stopped short? I don't know. I just felt like I was trying to figure out what was missing with Mr. Broad. And the same thing with Mr. Wisdom, it it became very esoteric, which the name of the chapter was Esoteric, where it just kind of spins your head in circles as you listen to this guy teach John about wisdom. And I thought it was interesting that this was healing for virtue when for me, it didn't feel as healing. Yeah. Mr. Wisdom, Wisdom is not the end of the road, but- there is some things, and you can even see in what Mr. Wisdom says that there's something that Lewis continues to draw on in his logical arguments, even, even in his books that he writes for the rest of his life. But going to Mr. Broad, Mr. Broad is kind of this, it's allowing for there to be religion, which seems kind of like this intellectual um, concession, like, okay, fine, we can't know everything, but we can um, we can be religious and but it, it's he's condescending about Mother Kirk still, and even about the idea of getting to the island, and about there being any real. He's he's a lot like Mister Sensible. He just kind of has more of the flavor of mysticism, and you could say that's an equivocation of their idea of his idea of religion. So you can see modern re- pseudo religious a- attitudes. I'm thinking of like astrology or well, astrology would be more of the occultish type thing. That's even further South, but you know, leading to kind of whatever is popular. I was maybe thinking too much of a connection to claptrap. Yeah. I was thinking of people who might attend a congregation and raise, even raise their kids in a religion that they believe it's helpful. They believe it helps raise good people. And that these are good principles to apply, but when the rubber meets the road, do they really believe in a savior? Right. And they might even openly question the reality of of Christ or some of these core doctrines where 
it's interesting you'd participate in religion at all if the, if you didn't actually have some type of faith. In right. That. From somebody like Mr. Sensible, you'd look at that person, you'd say, oh, you just don't participate in religion. Just become more humanist and come up to my, you know, a mile north instead of a mile south. And, um, but for people who are willing to just settle because maybe they do just enjoy not having to think about things. They want to just not have to engage intellectually. So may as well do that. So you can say Mr. Broad and Mr. Sensible are the same person. It's just where they're trying to flex. Mr. Sensible wants to flex like he's a northerner. Mr. Broad wants to flex like he's a southerner. But they're really not they're they're not being responsible about the conclusion of their convictions or they don't even have convictions. Right? And so they can call anything that makes them have to change or call them to responsibility as old fashion fashion or orthodox or something, you know, something less enlightened and their enlightened means actually comfortable. So they're avoiding the discomfort. So where does wisdom fall short? Now wisdom, I think, so this is where in the past we've talked about Lewis kind of coming to Christianity through this, a philosophical tradition. And this is something I really believe that if you are taking serious, the experience of your consciousness, your life, and what does the world mean? Have a paradigm of belief. There are people, you could call them philosophers. There's a rich history of philosophical tradition that has come to really important understandings, some of them more true than others. I like to think of the history of philosophy as like a tree and that trunk of the tree, if it's Jesus Christ, then it becomes this beautiful and flourishing thing, right? But the further away you get from the trunk, maybe it's, it's losing its purpose a little bit, you know, coming back to that main road, if maybe that's the analogy that you want. And so you have this back and forth in the history of philosophy with different dichotomies. And this is all based on interpretation of the way that people understand it. And I don't really understand it that well. And so that what it helps me to think of is um, you have the idealism and then, and then materialism or rationalism and um, empir empiricism. And so you have this back and forth. Uh, there's this painting. I can't, I don't know who, it, who it's by, but it's of Aristotle and Plato. And Aristotle is gesturing to the ground and Plato is pointing up to the sky. And you can see that from that tradition, there's this dichotomy in philosophical thought of the North and the South almost, or you ha can have materialism and idealism and following it. And they kind of keep each other in check as you're going down the main line. So when John is dissatisfied with Mr. Broad and he comes to Mr. Wisdom, um, that well, let's go to our audio clip because I think that shows us this question that you were asking before, which is what is it about what's curing virtue? And right. so this is where, um, Mr. Wisdom like directs his conversation to virtue. Great. Let us turn then to the old tale of the landlord. Some mighty man beyond this country has made the rules. Suppose he has, then why do we obey them? Mr. Wisdom turned to Virtue and said, This part is of great concern to you and to your cure. Then he continued, There can be only two reasons, either because we respect the power of the landlord and are moved by fear of the penalties and hopes of the rewards with which he sanctions the rules, or else because we freely agree with the landlord, because we also think good the things that he thinks good. But neither explanation will serve. If we obey through hope and fear, in that very act we disobey. For the rule which we reverence most, whether we find it in our own hearts or on the steward's card, is that rule which says that a man must act disinterestedly. To obey the landlord, thus, would be to disobey. But what if we obey freely, because we agree with him? Alas, this is even worse. To say that we agree and obey because we agree is only to say again that we find the same rule written in our hearts and obey that. If the landlord enjoins that, he enjoins only what we already propose to do, and his voice is idle. If he enjoins anything else, his voice again is idle, for we shall debate him. In either case, the mystery of the rule remains unsolved, and the landlord is a meaningless addition to the problem. So this is from the angle of philosophical idealism. 
how can you be motivated to have moral virtue? Where is, where is your moral objectivity? And you can see in philosophers like Immanuel Kant or even Hegel that there's this spiritual element of the universe that's kind of demanding of you. And that line later from Mr. Wisdom of the I and not I, that there's the spiritual aspect of yourself that's compelling you toward a virtuous life. And so if you were to sin against the rules, you're, you're basically sinning against yourself. And you can see a lot of uh, what came to mind is, um, if, have you seen Little Miss Sunshine? It's a it's a great movie, but not a lot of it is about this specifically. But one of the the character played by by Paul Dano is this the older brother of the main little girl girl character, and he's like obsessed with Friedrich Nietzsche. And Nietzsche kind of comes along from this this line of thought, and because he's come to this almost nihilistic it's not nihilism, he comes to this existentialist idea of what the universe is and his role in it, that it makes him very strict with his own behavior. In fact, we meet him when, he, when he's made a vow of silence until he completes a certain goal that he has. And we see part of the problem of that when he realizes through the course of the movie that he's colorblind and his goal was to be a pilot and you can't be colorblind and become a pilot. I'm not sure what the, if those rules are specific to just being a pilot or like a fighter pilot or whatever. But he freaks out. They're driving and he like makes the driver of the car stop so he can just run out of the car and scream. His whole moral structure was destroyed because the source of his virtue was this identity, almost this solipsistic. And that word solipsism is kind of like a Truman Show type uh, paradigm where you become your own God and have this demand on yourself and nothing, literally nothing else matters except the development uh, and the relationship of your physical self and this spirit self and that relationship between the two. But I think that this is important, especially with Mr. Wisdom and talking to virtue about how to have this moral objectivity is that Lewis himself came to a moral objectivity that was not dependent on God. Remember in Paralandra what the reason for the, the commandment not to sleep on the fixed island, what, that, what Ransom realizes is the reason? Because it was a commandment? It's obedience itself is the commandment. If there were any other motivator, if it were for fear of the landlord or for fear of God, or if it were for to, to come onto the island and to have some sort of sort of carrot or stick as the motivation that's not yourself, then you can't trust your motivation. And this is what makes virtue sick in the first place is he realizes I can't follow the rules because I've been promised some special place and I can't follow them because there's a pit. And I also can't follow it if it's just my will because that's where it's easier for John because he's been following his desire all along where virtue, you know, that's opposite of what he's been trying to do the whole time. Yeah, and he he's made sick by his interaction with Savage. Savage is this nihilistic character. And if you take away all meaning... If you don't have this idea of yourself beyond your physicality, you don't have this spirit. And I'm using the word spiritual because that's the, the language of the idealists, specifically Hegel, that this idea of this transcendent virtuous self, without that, virtue has no power. And now he's rediscovered his power because he can kind of bifurcate himself into these two po opposing parts, which actually become John and virtue. And that's what we'll see in our mm. next, in our next group of books. Love it. Thank you as always for being in our book club and we hope you'll continue with us and bring some other friends to read with you. If you'd like to participate with comments, questions, criticisms, or corrections, you can email us a message or voice memo at book club at mountainair.media, M-T-N-A-I-R. 
And please subscribe, rate, and review on the podcast app. And in our next episode, we will be covering books 8 through 10 and finishing off The Pilgrim's Regress. See you then. See you soon.